Hello, and welcome back to the Fight Site MMA podcast episode, what is this, 17, 18? We're close. Yeah, uh, I think it's 17. And today we have uh, two pretty interesting uh, discussionary topics. And then for the last third of the segment, we will just try to answer some patron questions uh, about footwork and extended exchanges. I feel like we talk about that every other week that we're together but you know what fuck it that's what they pay us for uh so but to start out we actually have a an interesting an interesting contest on our hands um to is dan hooker a top five lightweight i don't know what he's ranked yeah he's number five okay well a, a top five lightweight contest between dustin poirier and dan hooker uh and then we're gonna talk about one of the best fights of the year so far, which was Josh Emmett against Shane Burgos, a featherweight contest, which Serum and I both absolutely loved, even if it bummed us out a little bit. And so we got a lot of interesting material. So I'm I'm actually looking forward to this week. But Serum, how are you doing, my friend? I'm good. Uh, Emmett Burgos, obviously. It was kind of sad, but we'll get to that. But, yeah, I mean, the next week's card is kind of really bad when the co-main event is Mickey Gall. But the main event is at least relevant, and that's something kind of new. Uh, yeah, you know, until you said that, I had forgotten that Mickey Gall was actually a thing at all. Co-main Gall versus Perry, boy, yeah, that should be. Well, if Diego Sanchez can knock you out, I feel like Mike Perry should be able to. But wh- whatever, that is not why we're here. Who gives a fuck? Um, I'm gonna kick it to you, uh, because you have major opinions about. These two men, quite well known on on the Twitter sphere. <clears throat> what are you feeling on uh, Dustin Poirier versus Dan Hooker? Where are you at? The way that I look at Hooker, and I think it's something that Ryan kind of made it seem less viable than it was, was that Hooker's kind of a version of Moicano, who's bad at all the Moicano things. He walks around on the outside, he does jabs, and he does outside leg kicks, and he's not. His jab is fine. His leg kicks are kind of like one note. His outside footwork isn't really anything special. So you've kind of just got a guy who's like pretty disciplined when he gets his fight. But, you know, Poirier is not the kind to allow that kind of fight to happen. He's the best combination puncher in MMA, arguably, when he's not facing Khabib Nurmagomedov. Uh, He's a very good distance coverer. And I think the kicking game is going to be pretty rough for a hooker, considering how much of it is the calf kick from like the close stance. So it seems like a pretty open and shut fight. I'm just pretty worried about uh, where where Poirier is standing right now. And I think that's something that people can overlook a little bit because, you know, Khabib is one he was expected to lose. But the run he was on before Khabib is pretty concerning in terms of where I expect him to be after it. Yeah. Um, You know, I I was kind of mostly in the same boat with this, like watching tape and... And I, I've I've had plenty of complaints about Dan Hooker to this point. I mean, from my from where I'm sitting, it really looks like it really looks like Dan Hooker wants to be Israel Adesanya without any of the same kind of depth or smarts that makes Adesanya great. Um, I actually had this conversation with uh, Adel Burchich on Twitter yesterday, where he argued that Dan Hooker is a fighter who looks like he's he's learned a lot by watching. I think that's pretty pretty accurate that he's, 
you know, he, and that's why, in the sense that I compared him to Adesanya because they're training partners. He looks like a fighter who's been watching a lot of Adesanya and like, you know, sparring with him. And <clears throat> so he's internalized a lot of the same things that Izzy does, but it doesn't have nearly the same the same depth or the same understanding or application that Adesanya does. And so um, in general, Hooker makes use of only a couple weapons. He's got the calf kick. He's a, he's a decent kicker. Defensively, he really likes to resort to his his long guard and his frames. I think he's a guy. He's a he's a big long featherweight who's you know largely insulated by his reach but as we have seen when you get past that reach he is not very sound defensively does not adjust defensively the way that Adesanya does it sometimes feels like he's shocked when opponents can just reach out and and punch him and so like I I don't dislike all of the things Hooker does, I like. I think he's he had some good ideas against Paul Felder. Like he caught a couple kicks. Um, you know, he tends to when when Felder did just try to kind of push past the jab and get into punching range. Hooker looked for the check hook, the check left hook. But I I just don't it. I just don't think his game works quite as well as he wants it to. He doesn't have. He doesn't have the same kind. He doesn't have the same kicking game as Adesanya, which is a big thing. So if he is just caught on the outside, he tends to just sort of be pecking with the the calf kicks. Um, he doesn't have the same footwork or the same defensive options or adaptability that Adesanya does. It's, he, he's an, he's a strange one, and I like he's also notably he is the last person that Edson Barboza beat. You know, or like he's finished, like, and got absolutely shredded to pieces in mid-range against Barbosa because he didn't have the sense to pressure, and by the time he decided to pressure, he was both wasn't sound enough at it, and he, you know, he it was too late. He'd absorbed too much too much damage from kicking range at that point. So there's that. Like, I think that in general, I, I do feel like there's. You know, there should be a lot of avenues for for Dustin Poirier, but I think I kind of agree. I'm I'm sort of curious. Like, I don't really know where uh, I don't really know where Poirier is right now because that the loss to Khabib was not only was it like thorough and comprehensive, but it I'm not sure I I trust Poirier to not let that creep into his mind a little bit, if that makes sense. There are times where Poirier's always seemed like a bit of an emotional fighter, and uh, and he, although I think he did a, a went to great lengths to rectify that, it was such as we talked about on the show, like um, they never had the right idea. The camp clearly never had the right sense for how to approach Khabib, and I wonder if that's that's just kind of going to impede his his confidence. Like, do you, do you think do you think Poirier's slowing down at all? I think it's very possible, and I think there's there are a bunch of independent, like even outside of the Khabib fight, because that wasn't one where uh, there's like that was one there where there's a great deal of matchup stress on Poirier to start with, and I think if we picked Poirier, it was on expecting him to adapt when he hasn't really shown that. But I think the way that I'm looking at it is if you look at his run, first of all, he's like 10 years in, more than 10 years in, I'm pretty sure. Uh, second of all, even before his lightweight run, he had that fight with uh, Chan Sung Jung. 
that's an independently ridiculous war that he had. And I mean, it's not really on the level of Poirier Holloway or Poirier Gaethje, but it it's mileage. And he's had a ton of mileage. And if you look at his lightweight run, you had fights against Jim Miller. That was nasty. You had the Pettis fight. That was nasty. You had both Alvarez fights, both of which were pretty nasty. You had Gaethje, which was historically nasty. And you had Holloway, which was also historically nasty. Basically, every single fight that Poirier had during that run, it tested something out of him. It tested him mentally and it tested him physically. And I don't think a guy, even if he passes all those tests, it's going to take something out of him. We've seen that time and time again. We saw that with uh, Aldo and Mendez after their rematch. We saw that with Whitaker and Romero after their rematch. And it's just, it's tough to trust. Like, I, I really do want to trust Poirier because this isn't a particularly tough matchup for him on paper. But just in terms of career form, I think it's going to be hard for me to trust Poirier moving forward too much longer. This is one that he should definitely win. And like, as you mentioned, Hooker, I think the thing about Hooker is that he's not really in the city kickboxing mold. Because if you look at the rest of the guys out of that camp, aside from Adesanya, who had a ton of kickboxing experience, they tend to be a little bit stockier, right? They tend to be like Riddell, who also has a ton of kickboxing experience, but still there's like Riddell, there's Kaikar France, there's Alexander Volkanovsky. I think Hooker doesn't really have a system that's as well-equipped to deal with being a long guy, where Adesanya had the kickboxing experience. So you don't have, for example, Adesanya's like handsiness on the inside. That's a lot of his defense. Hooker just doesn't have that. So he doesn't really have a way to enforce that length as well as other guys can cover the distance, if that makes sense, because city kickboxing seems better for that. So I think Poirier just kind of closes him down. It's going to be a rough fight if Hooker can enforce that length, and I can't really see a reason why he would with all the tools that we've seen from him so far. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the notable thing about Hooker is, I, I don't know about you, but I scored the the fight with Felder for Paul Felder. Um, Same. I think Felder had a lot. I think Felder looked like the better fighter. I think he had a lot of the good, had a lot of good ideas against Hooker. Fel, I mean, we've talked about Felder isn't the most technically proficient fighter in MMA, but he's he is a very willing one and he is tough as nails and he's continues to try to look for look for the opportunities trying to find the openings or create them even if he doesn't have the the tools in his toolbox to do so um something i really admire about felder's recent run and paul felder had a lot of good ideas he hit the body uh which was really smart because hooker again kind of tries to lean out of the way of big shots um, he tried switching to southpaw. Hooker sometimes tries to smother his opponent's punches. So he would sort of crash the pocket, you know, off of Felder's combinations. And Felder's concession was the uppercut. And I think that should work very well for, for Poirier because Poirier did the same thing against Max beautifully in the first round of their fight. Um, Poirier is really long. Like he's uh, he's got an insane reach for for a lightweight. The power disparity should be big. I mean, the power disparity between Hooker and Felder was was big. I think the leg kicks are something to look out for. Poirier has been a little bit susceptible to those, like against Jim Miller. Yeah, I mean, the advantage in power and skill should be you know, and the inside should be should be sizable for Dustin Poirier. I think uh, Poirier did a lovely job obstructing Max's jab for the duration of their fight. Um, Again, like that seems to be Hooker's main tool from range is that jab against the southpaw, who's both a good hand fighter and good at the you know the active guard. Like like 
Poirier is, he should be able to disincentivize that a bit or at least mitigate it. How do you feel about like Hooker as a offensive wrestler or a grappling threat? Because he was able to like he was able to at least kind of grab Felder's back for some of the fight. He wasn't able to do a lot, but Hooker does have a fine like sprint grappling, you know, sprint submission game when guys shoot on him. He has the, you know, he has the counter knee when guys shoot in on him. Yeah, he seems like a counter wrestler. I don't think he's a bulletproof counter wrestler at all. Um, He's kind of actually he's not all that dissimilar from Dustin Poirier in terms of the broad strokes in their their styles. Poirier's been doing it longer, and Poirier is better at it, and he's been doing it at a higher level. I don't know. He only, Hooker only took Felder down once, and he didn't really do anything. I still thought he lost that round because he was getting dinged up on the feet. Yeah, he quote-unquote stole the round with it, but yeah, that's, that's like that, not actually a thing. I don't know if people knew, know this, but there was some judging bias for that fight where all the judges were like... New Zealand or Australians and they they you know a couple of them saw that if they scored the last round for Paul Felder he would have won and so they went with Hooker. <laughs> it was the same situation with uh Bigfoot versus Hunt. Like it was the the exact same kind of thing. But I, I did not like the way that Hooker kind of broke down throughout the Felder fight. Um as that fight went on, Paul Felder just being just being gritty and and, you know, being who he is, he kept stepping in, kept finding a mark for his right hand and trying to to push into the pocket and then kind of push Hooker out of it uh, with combinations. And that was very nice. I think Hooker was pretty beaten down and exhausted by the end of that fight. Um, I guess the saving grace is that this should be Poirier's... This should at least be Poirier's kind of fight. You know what I mean? Like, part of the reason that Khabib fight went so catastrophically bad for him was because, let's face it, he the last time he fought an opponent who was trying to do what Khabib did, it was, I mean, shit, Danny Castillo? Fuck if I know. Like, it was... The point is, he hadn't fought anybody in a long, long time who was trying to do the same sort of thing. At a base level, this hooker is more, you know, at least resembles some of the guys he's been fighting more, you know, to a degree than uh, than Khabib did. But I, I agree. I sort of don't really know where Poirier is at right now. I, I feel like with all of what we've talked about, the defense, the the difference in skill, because, again, I, I want to reemphasize the difference in power and skill on the inside should be enormous for Poirier. And I think Poirier is the better fighter. Like, I don't. I wouldn't pick Hooker to beat Max Holloway or or Justin Gaethje, you know. But I also wouldn't be shocked if Poirier, from his last loss, just his confidence just looks kind of broken. Yeah, I mean, so insofar as the leg kicks that you mentioned, I think one thing that hasn't been talked about a bunch is the stance matchup with that, because um, Hooker against Felder it was mostly calf kicks from the uh, from the close stance. And I think Poirier, he is kickable. Gaethje kicked him a bunch, and Jim Miller kicked him a bunch. But Jim Miller was also working from the close stance. He was, uh, it was a southpaw-southpaw fight. And Gaethje, he did get off a bunch of inside leg kicks. But one, Gaethje is definitely a better kicker than Hooker. He's A, more powerful, and B, better at timing them. And, like, it's not even particularly close there. And the other thing is that Poirier was actually pretty solid at countering them. 
at times. He ate a bunch of them when he was like walking in out of position. But when Gaethje fired them naked, he countered them very consistently with the straight. That's how the finish came about. So I don't think Hooker gets those for free. Insofar as the wrestling, I think a lot of it is Hooker being pretty long. If I remember correctly, against Ally Aquinta when Al tried to wrestle him. And Al's not a great wrestler, but it, he's he's functional. And um, Hooker just kind of like cross-locked him, if I remember correctly. I think he functions more as a, um, as a counter-wrestler with a knee and his guillotine game than... Um, as an actual wrestler. Uh, so I don't really see that being a great threat, especially considering how Poirier did against Pettis. The scrambles were pretty cool and he looked pretty nasty on top himself. So I don't think the grappling's particularly bulletproof for Dan Hooker as it was for Khabib, who's just a different animal. Overall, this kind of feels like a fight between a guy who's more quote unquote technical than he seems versus a guy who's kind of less. Because if you look at Poirier, the way he fights, a lot of people, and I'm seeing this way too often, is that Poirier is not a technical fighter because he fights in the pocket, he fights in combinations, and the Max fight has kind of been reframed as Max is running into power that he hasn't before, which is true, but Poirier also outgamed him in a lot of significant ways, uh, as a southpaw, with the hand fighting, with all his counterpunching, uh, with his lead hand, which was absolutely brilliant, where Dan Hooker, he's plucked right from the mind of Joe Rogan as a technician, he moves around on the outside, he jabs, he does the new calf kick. He's a sniper, which means that he can't actually be in the pocket. He just counters from outside and leaves. And there's not as much depth there as I think people think minimalists have to be successful. Because he's, you know, he he hasn't run into the competition that can really exploit it aside from Barboza. So, yeah, I think Poirier, it might be a close first round because Poirier is, you know, he's been out for a bit. But once Poirier gets going, if he gets going, it's not going to be close, in my opinion. Yeah, I think Poirier by a later stoppage is probably smart. I think they'll probably compete for a while, but over time, I just, I just can't really see Hooker not getting broken down. It just, that just kind of feels like the, it feels like the pick to me. Um, I hope Poirier wins. I really, I, I really don't find a lot to, a lot of interest in Dan Hooker. There's not a lot that I'm. Excited to see. I don't have great expectations for him going forward. Um, I think he's he Tony Ferguson after this. That could be more interesting than it should. I guess, but I don't know. I like the Poirier I, fight more for that anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be down to watch Poirier Ferguson at this point. Now that they're both kind of coming off losses. I don't know. The, my, my main thing is just. I just wish that I had more faith in Poirier than I do in terms of where his head is at and and where his body's at. Um, in general, you've seen me make these picks before, where you have kind of a more skilled older guy against a just a, you know a fresher younger guy. Oftentimes, the smart pick is just pick the fresher younger guy for that you know for that reason. But I don't think I'm going to do it here. Uh, yeah, rooting for Poirier. Hope you can get it done. <clears throat> I think that's I think that's all we need to say about that one. Uh, pretty yep. pretty straightforward as far as I'm concerned. Um, and then the time comes, we'll 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 recap it and see if it, you know, when Hooker draws Poirier onto a Jim Miller esque knee, then we can we can retcon this whole conversation. But oh dear, uh, last weekend. There was a a pretty awesome fight, 
if I do say so myself. One of my favorites this year, maybe my favorite this year. Shane Burgos, who is one of our favorite fighters to watch at featherweight. And Josh Emmett, who I think we are, you know, going to have to discuss in this segment, who we got to start giving some serious praise to. Uh, fought for three rounds. I wish they had gotten a chance to go five, but it was a, it was a war. It was an absolute featherweight slugfest, and another reason why featherweight is just, just such a competitive division. You know, it's it's just it's just a division with a lot of variants, and it's just hard to. Hard to see anybody holding the title for very long, given the way that just how competitive it is up and down the block. So you wrote an article, so I'm going to let you uh, take it away on this one. But why was Burgos versus Emmett awesome? Yeah, um, I think there's a lot to say about just how both fighters work in terms of a broad sense that made this interesting going in. Because I think they were completely opposite in terms of how they work, right? Like if you ran... Burgos Americani back, you'd be like, Burgos wins that every single time. He might get wrestled for the early stages when Maquan can't keep that up, and Burgos just wrecks his body. There's like a clear dynamic there, where with Emmett, there kind of wasn't with a fight like the Johnson fight, where Johnson kind of, it wasn't like dominant, but Johnson kind of outslicked him for like nine minutes straight and then just got bombed. So you kind of had a very consistent process-driven fighter to an extent against a guy who you're not even sure whether he truly worked at all, but this fight, I think it's weird to say a 35-year-old had a coming out party after fighting for a decade, but that's exactly what this was to me for Josh Emmett. Um, I'm, I'm still not a huge fan of him. I think he's not particularly deep, but yeah, we have to give him some respect because I think he's top five. Like, I'm not sure whether I would favor him against really, really elite competition who fights smart, and I think we'll get to that later, but I think his resume right now is pretty insane. Yeah, he does have an insane resume. So this was this was an interesting one because we all kind of figured it'd be a really a really dangerous one for Burgos and what shocked me was how Burgos did not seem to care about that early um, and he just was fine walking Emmett down from the opening bell. This was this did raise some some issues with Burgos, uh, who I think Burgos is a very naturally gifted counterpuncher. His counter jab was excellent. He almost he won almost every jabbing battle that there was in this fight. Um, I think he he has obviously a lot of the right ideas in hitting the body, but he engages and initiates so much, and he doesn't quite have the depth to pull it off. Um, a lot of times he would step into the pocket and he'd be completely square. Like his stance would just be flat, which, you know, in the third round allowed Emmett to kind of shift in and, and drop him. Um, I don't think Burgos closes distance safe enough either. Like he, a lot of times he would just sort of throw these skipping knees to try to, you know, crush a lot of distance and that opened him up to the check hook almost every time off it. And it didn't always hit it, but it was there. I like, obviously, I love watching Burgos fight and the fact that Burgos pushes such a frenetic pace and he's, you know, so willing to engage over and over. He just wants to drown you. But I think he has, he has a little bit of the, the same problem that Max Holloway does, except more so because he doesn't have, he doesn't even have the same 
the same discipline as a t- and attention as Max does, and he clearly doesn't have the same chin. So Max can get away with messier exchanges more than Burgos can. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. I think one thing about the fight was that Burgos, when he covered distance with the jab, it actually worked out pretty well. Because the way that worked was, Burgos, he obviously had a huge reach advantage in this fight. And when Burgos flicked out the jab, Emmett would sometimes try to counter. He often didn't. Emmett didn't have consistent answers to the jab. But when Emmett tried to counter, he just had to cover so much distance, right? So Burgos, by the time he could, like, leap forward and, like, try to cross counter, he couldn't hit simultaneous counters. He had to hit it on the wind back. So when Emmett tried to come back, he could just guard easily. He could uh, do the little head roll thing. That was just, it's so slick. I love it so much. It's, it's a bit unsafe, but I love it. And he even shoulder rolled one. And I think that... It was safe. And the other thing was when he threw his rear hand naked, right? He got hit with big counters and stuff. But when he got Emmett reacting with the jab and then threw the right hand, it worked pretty much like uh, it was only near the end of round two that he did it. But it worked pretty consistently. He was able to turn it into like little uppercut openings that he did against Cub Swanson. It was very, very slick. But the problem is that I think Burgos knows that guys just want to swing at him when he walks forward. And it works, but he's just not always aware enough to defend those he's offensively focused so it's i think he could do with a safer game especially since his kicking game is so it's genuinely great but he just doesn't want to and it's weird yeah like i that's the thing with with shane burgos i think it was tommy elliott who pointed out in our chat that like it feels like every shane burgos fight we just get to see all of shane burgos and that's part of the problem (laughs) Um, is that if you want to be an elite fighter, especially in a division like featherweight, you need to you need to not show every part of yourself in every fight. Um, you need to be able to to change speeds. You need to be able to to kind of play in different gears. You know what I mean? Um, like I again, I thought that a lot of Burgos's individual tactical things were incredible in this fight. I loved his his inside leg kick counters to a guy. You know, a guy who transfers so much weight onto massive hooks and a guy who's willing to shift to get into range, like leg kick counters, you should be doing those all day. He quickly fucked up Emmett's legs with it. Um, I Like I said, I mentioned the jab earlier. I think that he, Burgos was maybe a little discouraged to go into the body because Emmett was so short. Um, but he played with rhythm nicely, um, like half beats and whole beats. He's... Like, he has so many good ideas, um, but he just doesn't have quite the same defensive depth to really play the game he wants to. He doesn't have the footwork to play the game he wants to, because, like I said, he'll often he'll often enter range squared up. He'll kind of square his stance and step into range. He'll close distance, sometimes carelessly. I think one of the things, and I, I came across this today when I, was, when I was rereading your article and watching some clips, but I think Shane Burgos can... You know, we praised Burgos and Calvin Cater both in that when they had their fight in 2018 about their both their abilities to adjust, like their ability to adjust uh, to what their opponent's doing and how that displays intelligence. And that's really great. Problem is, you know, they I think they each have their own problems in their own way, but Burgos can adjust his offense to limit an opponent's, but he's not defensively deep enough to adjust to adjust his defense with any real consistency. What I mean is like, okay, he can establish threats to limit 
offensive opponent. So it was for, you know, for Emmett and Cater, it was like, you know, kicking the lead legs, you know, for Cater, it was the jab. And then yeah, you know, Emmett for like his shifting combinations, as I mentioned for Amir Khani, a lot of it was the, the feints to kind of draw Amir Khani's lead hand up before going under it. Like he can, he can adjust his own offense to the, you know, to the opponent's offense. And that's really good. You know, he also did the front kick here, you know, established the threat of the front kick and came behind it. Um, worked really well. The problem is he just isn't that good. He isn't that deep defensively to continue those adjustments. He doesn't have like the tight footwork to, to pivot out when a guy steps in. He's not, he can move his head and slip his head and ride shots, but he do, he can't layer his head movement. He's not folding off his hips enough. He's not, he doesn't really use his rear hip to pull or slip or anything. He's always hunched over to kind of bait shots. His defensive bag of tricks is just not deep enough. He's not patient enough with his feints. He like, he, uh, he really just, I think Burgos really loves to just get after people and start fucking them up along the fence and so he's like, you know, he'll throw a couple like half-hearted feints before, you know, coming in, entering with something dangerous. He needs to look at fighters like Max and, and Volkanovsky, like guys in this division who can feint their way inside cautiously and carefully and make it really difficult for opponents to, to read what's coming at them. So that's, so that's something, right? You, you yeah. can adjust to offense all day. But, like, if you don't have the defensive depth, you can't adjust defensively enough. And at a certain point, that's just going to break down. Yeah, I think that's kind of the thing that happened at the end of the fight. Because Emmett, he he did, like, the uh, the TJ Dillashaw thing. I think that's what Jack Slack did. He basically just uh, he hit the stance switch by going in a square stance a bunch. But instead of going back to orthodox as he was the whole fight, he went to southpaw. And instead of letting Burgos realize that he was in southpaw, he just threw the left hand as soon as he was in southpaw. And that's what caught Burgos both times because he was kind of pursuing Emmett and he was he had the read for the right hand. He didn't have the read for the left hand out of southpaw. And that's what that's the thing. If you're not he doesn't have set responses to each thing. He works out responses based on what he thinks he's going to see in a fight. And that's kind of rough to deal with when you're because I didn't expect Emmett to be able to do that. I felt if the fight went that way for the first two rounds, Emmett would do his thing for the third round and lose it because that's kind of what happened with Michael Johnson, where he did his thing. It's just Michael Johnson couldn't stay focused to actually exploit it for the whole time. I figured Burgos would, you know, he sees the right hand in the first two rounds, he deals with it. He sees the right hand in the third round, he deals with it. But this time he just he went to the body, he went with the left hand, and it threw Burgos off a lot. And even more than it throwing Burgos off a lot, he didn't have the margin to be thrown off even a little bit. So I think, yeah, I think Burgos either needs to do what you said and he needs to be able to get into range more cautiously and actually draw offense out before he gets inside or he just needs to dedicate himself to being more of an outside fighter than he is because his jab and his outside and his outside kicking game, they're both brilliant. They're very good. He doesn't need the pocket against a fight, against fighter like Emmett. He really doesn't. But he thought he wanted to and it turns out that he probably didn't yeah i think it was julian who pointed out like i know we we bemoan the matchmaking and believe me there's more of that coming in the next couple weeks but i don't actually think that uh, no matter how much matchmaking you know goes for burgos i think at a certain point it just kind of comes down to him 
Like, I think this is just just comes down to like who he is as a fighter and what he wants to do. I don't know if it seems like his training at Tiger Shulman may have taken him as far as it can go. And I'm be, I mean, I'm being pretty critical on, on Burgos, but like, you know, I have to like I'm conceding. He, he definitely won the first two rounds of this fight and he did some he did some awesome stuff. It's just that I can see the great fighter that Burgos could be. I can see it. And you can, too. But I don't know if he's going to get there. Like, I, I don't know if it's going to, like, when this is going to kind of be beaten out of him. And if it is, if he's going to have anything left to go forward by then. So, but anyway, we, we talked a lot about Shane Burgos, but I think we need to spend some time on, on Josh Emmett. Because what did Josh Emmett do that was impressive? Because I, I, like I said, I walked away with a higher opinion of Josh Emmett, and I did not expect to. Yeah. I mean, first off, the obvious thing is he hurt his leg like really, really badly in the first like 30 seconds. So that's uh, that's something it was. a. I think he tore some ligament. He tore a ligament. He had like a he had a fracture apparently after his ACL. Uh, right. Didn't he tear his ACL? Yeah, something like that. It was ACL or MCL somewhere there. It's I mean, it's nasty. And, and given that he's so reliant on like forward bursts. It's genuinely, genuinely, really, really crazy that he won that fight. Or, I mean, even if I think we scored it a draw or Emmett, but even if it was a draw, it, it's insane because Burgos, he's a hard man to beat, even even full strength. And Emmett, he did it with one leg. But technically, yeah, I think I mean the biggest thing for me was that the end of the the end of the fight, he had very good ideas to throw off the reads that Burgos had because the first the second round it was really really bad for him. He got uh, he got jabbed up a bunch. He couldn't cover distance well enough, as I said, to uh, actually counter those. But then he started going to the body uh, with like these kind of cool body head combinations. He um, he switched southpaws, I mentioned, and that was what got him the knockdowns. It kind of looked like I don't I mean off brand Joseph Benavides is still pretty good, but it sounds demeaning. That's kind of what I want to say, but I'm not sure whether I should. And I guess I just have. But that's kind of what he looked like. It looked like he was possessed by Joseph Benavides for a little bit. And um, I think. That's an approach that could work against a lot of people. I think he's pretty solidly a top five threat. And that if you give him someone like Brian Ortega, for example, I think Ortega is going to have a hell of a time to deal with him. Um, someone like Korean Zombie might struggle with him. Zabit's probably going to struggle with him over five. And maybe even over three if he goes to the body more, even though the length is an obvious concern. I think Ennett's, he's more promising than I thought, assuming that the injury doesn't take him out for even more time. Which sucks because he's already off another bad injury at the hands of Jeremy Stevens. Yeah, I'm sort of of two minds with it. Like, um, as far as stuff that he did, like, I think it was Conor Rebus who pointed out, like, Emmett seems to improve as a fight goes on, which is great. Um, I like that every time Emmett hit the body, it opened stuff up for him. Um, I, like, literally every time he went to the body, he would get Burgos reacting and then he would hit him with the second punch. Um, there were more shifting combinations than I remember seeing from him in the past. He doesn't have a ton of different tools, but he makes them work with like a little bit of tweaking. That is impressive on its own. He kicked more in round three. Um, I mean, you you kind of nailed it. Like, you know, now I am interested in in what Josh Emmett does, and like, what a terrible time for it because. So okay, let's let's take a look at him. Um, so he's 35 right now. March, okay, so he had his birthday like three months ago. He's off for another 180 days, so he's off for another like three months. No, no, he's off for another six months to get everything healed up. 
by that point he'll almost be 36. Like it's it's such a shame because his time to make a run is now. And it, it sucks if like, you know, if this sort of keeps these injuries keep persisting and he does, clearly doesn't have time on his side. Um th- this is kind of something that I was going to we we talked a little bit about on Twitter is like I feel like you and I are going to have a hell of a time trying to pick Josh Emmett's fights going forward. <laughs> um because going to be annoying. On one hand, I can look at guys like Volkanovski and Holloway and Zabit and I can say well, like I, I can look at their skill sets and be like, well, I think all of them have it in their toolboxes to defuse Emmett, you know, similar to the way that Burgos did, but safer, you know, shut him down more, how to, you know, discourage him, etc. On the other hand, I can look at just about everybody in the top 10 and envision some kind of a path to victory for Emmett, if that makes sense. Like, I like I'm not. I wouldn't pick Emmett to beat Volkanovski, but if he managed to like hurt Volkanovski or land something massive by you know closing him down very fast, that wouldn't surprise me either. You know, I think that he. I think that Emmett trying to close so much distance off pure foot speed would you know would he'd have a difficult time against someone like Zabit unless he really committed to hitting the body in a way that he hasn't before. Uh, but then again, he Emmett gets stronger as the fight goes on, and Zabit does not. Um, like, do you see what I mean? Like, I can, I can. <laughs> it's going to be yeah. so irritating for us because I, and not not in the way that it was a week ago. I'm not. I'm no longer irritated by Emmett in the same way that I was before, in the sense that I just kind of thought he was. I, I kind of thought he was not quite as as skilled as his resume was indicating. But now it's like. I I can see these paths to victory for him. I don't know if he'll take them. Um I don't I don't expect Emmett to like knock out everybody from this point out. That's not what I'm saying, but hopefully you understand my point when I can you know with with Josh Emmett in the sense that like he's just going to be he's a bit of an enigma. Um I do want to I do want to address scoring a little bit. What did you think of the of the scoring of the fight? How'd you have it and like what was your 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 takeaway and if you had to score like pride rules, what were you thinking? Well, I mean pride rules is Emmett pretty clearly. Um he yep. won the third round by a way wider margin than Burgos. I think Burgos pretty clearly won the first and second rounds. It was I'm not it obviously wasn't as wide as the last one, which is um it was like the last one was like a ten seven or a ten eight. Uh, but the first two, I thought it was pretty shocking that all the judges scored it for Emmett. Because if you watch it back, I think a lot of it was um, Emmett getting kind of close with a bunch of right hands, landing like four clean punches, and uh, Burgos kicking his legs a lot, landing probably the biggest shot of the round uh, with that left hook to the body that landed late. That was, I think that was the only body attack he hit. Uh, but it was, I think it c- kind of got a visible reaction out of Emmett, I think. Um, he yeah. jabbed him a lot. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, round two, easy Burgos. Round one, I think it was easy Burgos, but it was uh, got a little bit controversial. Um, and round three, yeah, I, I had it overall a draw. If it wasn't a draw, then it was probably Emmett on a 10-7 round three. I just can't imagine giving him one or two. 
Yeah, I I think I mostly agree. Like, I mean, all of them were in moments. All of them were competitive in one way or another. Um, on rewatch, I I did not think that Emmett actually landed as much as I remembered in round one. Um, Burgos obviously took the second one, so I had Burgos winning the first two and then Emmett winning the third. I I mostly agree, but I think I was. I think I'm a little more on the side of it probably being a win for Josh Emmett. Um, best case scenario for Burgos, I think, is a draw. But, like, when Emmett turned it up, the the disparity was in the third round was huge. Um, you can't get dropped twice and not, you know, take a serious step back in terms of, like, momentum in a fight. But... I hope that, you know, again, I, not that this really matters too much, but I hope the narrative of the, of the fight doesn't, like, it doesn't just turn into people convincing themselves that it was a beatdown, because for the first two rounds, it looked like Burgos really had Emmett figured, uh, and Emmett, you know, did what he had to do in the third round. Again, that was a, like, that was a Herculean effort on his part um, in terms of the amount that he got injured, and I, I hope that we haven't seen the last of him. I just, like... You know, he might be 36 years old by the time he comes back. And, uh, you know, hard to be particularly optimistic at that point. Okay, I think that's good on uh, on Burgos Emmett. We absolutely loved it. It was a terrific fight. Easily my favorite fight this year. Um, I was just so lucky that it turned out the way that we were hoping um in terms of quality and now i think we are ready for segment three which i don't, I don't think anticipate is going to take too long but um i'm going to pitch it over to you serum why do we like footwork or whatever whatever the the question is yeah i'll look at the question but it really is like who's the best footwork guys and who's the best uh, layered exchange guys um it's I think we talk about it a lot, and most of the fighters that we like tend to have um, those two areas of strength. Because, like, even if you look at how much we were gushing over Shane Burgos before, it wasn't necessarily a footwork thing, but it kind of was a layered exchange thing. Uh, where if you look at his previous fights, he was he was a very good counterpuncher. He could um, he could hit the body very very regularly. He wasn't amazing in layered exchanges, but he was very good. And if you look at the guys like Jose Aldo, who we fawn over pretty much all the time. Uh, 24-7, 365, it's because his footwork was so brilliant on the outside and even on the front foot, but especially on the outside because he could, you know, just uh, throw guys, he could change the position of the fight with just like a pivot, which is pretty insane because most guys don't really understand how to do that. And on the front foot, he was very good at cutting the cage and at later, in later exchanges, he was very good at keeping guys from uh, taking angles whatsoever uh, because he was, he was always just there to pivot offline if they tried to step too deep. And uh, he kind of beat the crap out of them in later exchanges. He could move laterally in exchanges, which is something that Ryan pointed out in his article, uh, which pretty much always got him the uh, positional edge. But, uh, yeah, I mean, those are kind of obvious examples. Calvin Cater, probably very good in layered exchanges. Uh, both Cater and Burgos looked uh, very good in that sense in their fight. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is kind of just a retread of a topic, but it's... Um, yeah, it's a fun topic that we touch on quite a lot. I feel like I feel like we're giving a lot of the same answers. In a, in a broader sense, like I want to I want to emphasize that like as with everything in MMA, it, a lot of it comes down to context. Um, 
I think that like I, I don't think I think Calvin Cater has good footwork in a specific context. I think when you can take him out of that context, his footwork tends to break down. I think what separates Jose Aldo is the fact that he is he almost never has to he almost never changes that context because it's he's just so frighteningly skilled and closing him down or you know if he's closing you down he can he's able he's able to win fights in a variety of those different kinds of speeds like I pointed out in general Serum and I kind of look for the same sorts of things um I like guys who are able to take you know small steps to position themselves if you're taking big steps and you're you know bringing your feet together before separating them that's a bad sign um, as we just saw last weekend with Shane Burgos and Josh Emmett. Um, I do not have, I cannot fathom why footwork in MMA, why people just don't, don't know pivots. They just, they just don't know, like, just pivot moving. If someone's trying to push you back, just pivot, pivot out of the way. Like, and they'll just go sailing by and you've taken a new angle and you don't have to take a dozen steps backwards. I don't know, whatever. Um, we I feel like again we're bemoaning this a lot, but it's it's true. Um, I think a fighter, I think, like as far as context goes, you sort of have to look at like, well, what are you what are you trying to do? So you know, I think guys like Peter Yan, Rafael dos Anjos are great to look at for pressure footwork. Um, both of them are very good at cutting the cage. They often block off exits with their feet. And if opponents have to get out, they're usually good at making them, you know, they don't really give them exits for free. Uh, I think off the back foot, yeah, you've, you've kind of mentioned a couple of the, the big names. Um, I think Eddie Alvarez is a unique fighter in the sense that his, his footwork against pressure fighters and his cage craft, um, especially in confined space, is quite brilliant. Uh, I know pressure fighters have historically had a hell of a time trying to close him down, but Eddie Alvarez is also miserable when he has to close people down in open space. Like, in, in guys like... And that's kind of the interesting thing, um, is you can look at fighters... Li like, when, when people argue that footwork is an issue, you sort of have to think a little bit further. So when we say that Anthony Pettis has, you know, had poor footwork in comparison to Rafael dos Anjos, which I'm sure Serum and I both agree with that assessment. It's true. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that like the only problem with Pettis's footwork is that he's averse to pressure. We saw against Max Holloway that Anthony Pettis is also not very good when he's forced to close people down or when he's forced to pressure. That also can frustrate people in a way that you may not expect. It was like the same reason JDS had such a hell of a time trying to track down over him. Um, I think that the best footwork tends to be pretty, there, there tends to be a lot of utility and a lot of different aspects of it. Um, I think city kickboxing with the, ironically, with the exception of Dan Hooker, um, tends to be quite a good example of that. Um, I think Volkanovsky and Riddell, uh, Adesanya all have very good footwork in that sense. Um, a fighter like Robert Whitaker has nice footwork in the sense that he's 
he's almost always taking an angle and he's able to take angles on entries when he kind of leads with those karate blitzes. I think his actual exits are sometimes a little bit narrow. Um, and that, that's part of the reason he got caught against uh, he, uh, Romero in their second fight is like he's he kind of thinks he has more of an exit and instead of you know taking a pivot he kind of turns his whole body and is forced to forced to reset when it gets to like an exchange gets two or three you know punches deep um so like the big thing to look out for is just it's just context like context really does matter um if you're like going forward if you're going back for backward if you're in neutral space if you're trying to take angles on your opponent if, if you're trying to limit their ability to take angles on you so you know guys who are able to mirror mirror the moves of their opponent edward vartanian's really good at that if you can mirror an opponent's movements uh that means that they're going to have a very difficult time like flanking you or getting past your shoulder, or taking angles on you. Um, Aldo is also exceptional at that. Uh, yeah. Does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of all there is, I think. Yeah, uh, again, I feel like it's kind of weird to... It's hard to talk about footwork without like writing an article about it. I think you and I can definitely point it out when we're writing articles and you know creating gifts when we're just talking about it it's hard to give specific examples um without yeah, sounding I mean, just too you know esoteric yeah it's like not specific enough um i mean yeah the reason that i actually wrote about is magulov was that he pivoted uh, like once in the Moises fight it was like pivot? you never see this that's crazy dude fighters never do that in mma Literally, every time I see a fighter pivot in MMA, I'm, like, stunned. I'm like, wow, look at that. They know how to do, like, a day one boxing thing. That's great. Good for them. Um, I'm serious. It's, like, it is it is legitimately that rare. It's it's obscene. Um, the Okay, here's a rule of thumb. If a guy throws a combination and the opponent skitters all the way back to the fence... Like they, you know, they cover half of the octagon. They're doing something wrong. It's the Vitor Wanderlei. If they have to turn their back and run from you because they're in confined space, stop. <laughs> Look at yourself. <laughs> if they walk towards you where every step brings their feet together and the plane of their body is completely flat, Oh, You're shit, probably watching gone. Daniel Cormier. <laughs> in which case, you should stop. Um, and as as far as layered exchanges go, I mean, to tie it together, a lot of it just comes down to footwork. Like, I I I mean, actual layered exchanges. I'm not talking about Gilbert Melendez and Diego Sanchez throwing ten punches at a time of the same the same right hand over and over and over again. Um, in general, when exchanges get layered, you tend to be looking for more... <clears throat> you're looking for more positional edge. Um, and so the angles tend to be a little bit more subtle. You have guys like... 
honestly, if you really want to see a good example, it's not an MMA, but watch Cedric Dumbay fight. Um, he's incredibly angular. He's like one of the most angular kickboxers I've ever seen. Um, in the amount that he like shifts his stance and he's taking like hop steps to one side before he's pivoting back to the other, and he's like he's not, not only is he all over the place, but it also doesn't prevent him from like sitting down on punches. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, again, I feel like I feel like we talked about this a thousand times over. I'm sorry if I'm not bringing a whole lot new to the table, but like you know, we just spent a good portion of an hour talking about <laughs> talking about the footwork of the four you know major fighters that we're talking about today. Pretty uh, much, this is a feet podcast. Yeah, it's true. Um, don't be Edson Barboza. If you have to, if you have to break your stance and travel like 15 feet away every time your opponent sets, uh, probably yeah, exactly. Stop. <laughs> Think it through. Try again the next day. So, anyway, without wasting too much more of your time, uh, that's in general, that's kind of what we look for. I don't think, I feel like everyone who's listening to this probably knows our first, second, and third picks when it comes to footwork and MMA. Um, and who not to pick because, I mean, shit. Those are even more obvious. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it doesn't even, you don't even have to be like any kind of analyst to deduce that Gustafson has the footwork of a beached whale. Like, it's just (laughs) horrific. Anyway, uh, thank you guys for joining us on this week's podcast. Uh, I believe next week we will be talking about the results of Hooker Poirier. Is there a pay-per-view next week, or is it the week after? It's the week after, so... um... Well, then maybe... We'll see if we can get a guest on for that. Um, We've been talking to Hacks, our favorite guy. Most interesting man in the world. But I know we also need to get Trayvon Coker on here. Um, yeah. So we'll we'll try to organize those, see what we got in store. But then in two weeks, we'll be covering uh, Usman versus Edward. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, Not no. that one. Can't be that one. Uh, Usman versus Burns, as little sense as that may make. We're going to talk about it. Um, for all of your combat sports needs, please join us at thefightsite.com. You can follow me on Twitter at dmarty77. You can follow Serum on Twitter at SurumMsays. Serum just had an article go up about Shane Burgos and Josh Emmett. You should go read it. Myself, I am working on a Glory Welterweight Roundup article where I'm sort of talking about a lot of kickboxing's best welterweights at the moment. And that is all I really got in the tank. So uh, if you're good, I'm good. Yeah, 